that that's why Alan married me is because I was more of like an authority figure to him. A lot of boys try to find someone like their mom to marry. I I tried to find someone like my dad. Oh, man. That's amazing. I love that. This podcast addresses serious topics such as suicide that may be upsetting to some. Please use discretion while listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Monday, Mental Illness and Me. And today we are super excited to welcome another married couple on our show, Alan and Katie. And they're going to address a unique topic that we haven't discussed before. Uh, Mental illness for a lot of people is genetic and it's a lifelong condition and it requires constant vigilance with medication, with therapy, but depression can also be situational. Anybody can go through periods of depression in their life, especially when they're working through intense grief. So Alan and Katie are here to talk to us about situational depression after the loss of a loved one and how a spouse can support his or her partner through times like that. So I want to start, Katie, by asking you to introduce Alan to us. And then afterwards, Alan, I want you to introduce Katie to us so we can get to know you guys a little bit as a couple. Okay, sure. That's a fun way of doing it. Uh, Okay, so this is my husband, Alan Mount. Hi. Uh, Alan grew up in um, Santa Barbara, California for most of his life. He is very into sports. He played volleyball in high school. He played for UCLA and then eventually transferred to BYU. Uh, Alan um, served his mission in Barcelona, Spain, which is actually, spoiler alert, where we met on our mission. Um, Yeah, it just, it worked. And after the mission, moved to Utah and um, went to BYU and we got married shortly thereafter. Uh, Currently, he is a software, I don't even know what your title is. (laughs) Enterprise Solutions Direct. (laughs) No, I don't even know what my title is. (laughs) Okay, he does does software sales and uh, he is he's been performing at comedy sports in Utah for since like 2009. And we have four kids, um, ages 14, 12, eight, and six, one girl and three boys. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I love that. What a great intro. Alan, your turn. You're up. (laughs) My turn. Awesome. Well, uh, Katie was born here in Utah, but she did grow up most of her of her early years were in Irvine, California. So she's also a Southern California girl. She came back to uh, Utah and moved to Springville uh, when she was 10? 12. 12. So she's extremely nurturing. She's a, a very a very sweet and uh, confident woman, uh, which is something that has absolutely attracted me to her, if I'm still bold to say on this uh-huh. podcast. Um, Katie went to UVSC for, for college, um, now UVU, and ended up transferring to BYU as a creative writing English major. And uh, she was uh, kind enough to support me and my absolutely atrocious <laughs> academic career um, <laughs> when we decided to, uh, to have children before either of us had graduated. Um, I was working full time and and going to school full time, and she was at home with the kids, kid to start full time, and uh, she has been just an amazing mother friend. I love hearing you guys talk about each other. It's awesome. 
to see even after all these years how much you love and respect each other. And you actually work together on a podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about that? We do. Um, one of the other brilliant things that Katie came up with. So Katie, what's what's our podcast about? Yeah, so uh, Alan had um, a faith transition about two years ago, three years ago. And uh, there were very little resources um, really for anyone in our position, someone who wanted to stay in and someone who decided to step away. And so we started a podcast called Marriage on a Tightrope. And um, we've been doing it for about two and a half years. And we have a whole community to support anyone else who's in a mixed faith marriage. That's awesome. Thanks, you guys, for the very fun introductions. I love getting to hear them. I would like for you to tell us just a little bit about your dad, because he is going to be sort of the focus of our discussion today. What kind of a person was your father? So my dad, Justin, physically, he was six foot eight. And, uh, you know, being a extroverted alpha male from Southern California, uh, he embodied all of that. He was extremely fun loving, but very very um, direct and at times uh, aggressive. He knew what he wanted for his family and he worked tirelessly to accomplish it. He pushed us to, to um, be proud of our work. If you're going to do something, do something, do it right. Uh, he would critique, um, you know, my, my lawn mowing skills <laughs> and say like, is that a $5 cut, Alan, or is that a $2 cut and things like that? Um, you know, he, he was, he was the man who, I mean, he was similar to many men in his age group was, was like a clock. You knew exactly what he was doing at every single moment, especially during the work week, because he was out the door at 6am back in the door between five and five thirty, And you always knew it was him. This is just a little fun anecdote. You always knew it was him by the way that he opened the door with a little oomph. He was a huge sports fan. He played basketball in college. He was an enormous Lakers fan. Um, he was at every single sports game of all of his kids, including me when I played baseball, one of the sports that he wasn't crazy about. Uh, very supportive, um, very encouraging of, of um, I'm sure he was at multiple uh, plays that I did in high school, the few that I did. Uh, he was just a, an incredible um, supporter of, of everything that his kids wanted to do. My favorite, my favorite is like the stories of him just randomly, like Alan's friends would be home and Alan wasn't there. And he'd be like, Hey James, <laughs> want to go to a movie with me? Yeah. Like, like, Hey Brett, let's go get some food. I mean, he just like, he, he was very loving to and supportive of, um, of Alan and his friends. So after after a good meal, which was basically every night, he would say, well, <laughs> it's a great life. He was very positive like that. Um, he would always ask the boys if they took their ugly pills or, well, it looks like you fell, you fell a few, uh, hit a few branches <laughs> of the ugly tree on your way down. Uh, literally to his dying day, he was an amazing example of hard work. He took it upon himself out there in Georgia. They were only there for four years before he passed. Uh, he took it upon himself to very quietly, without getting any of the credit himself, he helped um, 
uh, fund uh, building a new home for them and actually built much of the home himself. So the reason you're here on this podcast today is to talk a little bit about the mental struggle that you had, Alan, as a result of your father's sudden and tragic death. And I know it's a really sensitive topic, um, but I was wondering if you could just give us a brief understanding of the events that surrounded that time of his passing. Um, yeah, you know, we were in our home in Taylorsville. It was about nine o'clock at night and we got a phone call from my oldest brother. And when I saw my caller ID um, and the time that it was, knowing that back east it was 11 o'clock at night. We knew something was wrong. I immediately yeah. went, oh, there's something going on here. And I looked at Katie and I was like, I'm going to go answer this in the other room. So I called and, you know, he, without, without saying anything, uh, any pleasantries, he said, Alan, dad's been in a very serious car accident. And of course my heart, stomach, any other vital organs dropped. And, uh, he went on to explain, you know, he's in the hospital now. He has an obvious, um, neck injury. We're not sure. Um, we're not sure on his status, but he's in, he's in extremely critical condition. Um, the doctors aren't sure, uh, he can't breathe on his own. So they're, they're not sure if he's had, um, permanent spine damage. They're doing tests right now. They're just trying to keep him alive. So he's talking me through these things and it's just, Oh my goodness, what do we do here? And you know, the introduction lends itself to say like, this doesn't happen to the big strong gym. Like he's, he's immune to this. He can't, he can't, what car could do this to my dad? You never expect it to happen to you. And, and then it does. Um, we, we find out the next day that uh, it was extremely unlikely that he would ever move again. He had a cervical injury uh, between the C2 and C3 uh, vertebrae, which um, a cervical spine issue uh, or injury not fully severed. Of course that equals you're not alive anymore, but it was partially severed. It was very similar to the Christopher Reeves injury and Christopher Reeves was able to live quite some time because of his money to be able to give him the best quality care. So we knew what we were up against pretty early that if he made it out of the hospital, it was going to be a drastically different life. Um, wouldn't be able to move anything from the, from the neck down. Like the next day after it happened, um, Alan's sister called us and said, because they were getting such bad news. They said, if, um, dad's going to have surgery. And if you want to see him alive, you need to come now because he may not make it through the surgery. Yeah. The doctors gave it like a, it's like a 50% right. he might not make it through this surgery. So we, like literally packed our bags. We were on the next flight to Georgia. Um, I think we're missing how it happened. Um, oh, he yeah. was, he was driving his car on this little two lane highway in Georgia. And he was on his way to meet his son for a movie. And, um, a woman pulled out, but from behind a semi trailer and she was under the influence and she, she, the first car that came in contact with her just barely seconds had seconds to swerve. And then she hit Jim just head on. 
And um, he went, Jim went down a little embankment and luckily his next door neighbor's kid, this 18 year old kid was right behind him when the accident happened. So he pulled over, he went to Jim and Jim said like, I can't breathe. And so he said, I'm calling the ambulance. And so they called the ambulance. The woman who hit him pulled off the side of the road because now she had a wrecked car called her friend oh to pick goodness. her up and left the scene. And then he was airlifted to Atlanta to a hospital there. So we, we were in the hospital. He was conscious for part of the day for the first five days in the hospital. And so we were able to um, well, speak at him, <clears throat> excuse me, speak at him. Um, he was intubated because he couldn't breathe on his own. Uh, and so he couldn't, he, he was physically capable of speaking, but because of the tube, he couldn't speak. Um, so he would have a, a, a little pen in his mouth and a board that had the alphabet and common words on it that he would point to if he wanted to communicate something to us. And that was really frustrating for someone like him who likes to be in control and is proud of his hard work and all those things. Uh, so, you know, we asked him like, is there anything we can get you? And he oh. spelled out new neck in classic. And I choose to, <laughs> I choose to believe that was in classic Jim Mount humor. Um, you know, in, in those few days that we were there in the hospital towards the end of it, Katie and I had to get back to Utah and, and I remember, you know, we went in alone to say goodbye to him. Like, Hey, we're going to go back to Utah. And Katie turns to me and has to be the, um, hardest few minutes of my life. Um, to this day still, I don't know how, what could get harder. Um, and she said, you should say goodbye to him. Like goodbye, goodbye, uh, just in case. And, um, he wasn't, he wasn't uh, conscious at the moment he was sleeping, but, um, I can't even remember what I said, <laughs> but I took a few minutes to, to just tell him how much I loved him, how proud I was, um, how we're pulling for him, how great of a father, um, anything good that I have in my life is because of him and the way he taught me. But, uh, I couldn't speak for the first 30 seconds. I was just like, how am I supposed to do this? How am I supposed to say goodbye to my father? You only get one dad in your life. So it's like, okay, we had this, I mean, surreal conversation of, I, I think it's time that we let him go. And we talked, I, we, we weren't there, Colleen and I, the two siblings, everyone else was, was there. They all felt, and this, this led to some of the, I mean, all of this led to some of the mental health issues that I experienced, but um, we didn't see him shut down. We left when he was still kind of waking up and, and well, talking and going back to sleep. But the day after we left, they said it all changed. It just, he started to decline. His coloring changed. Uh, it, it was like he, he had accepted his fate almost. And so the doctors kind of told us this isn't looking good. So the, the decision was made to unplug all of the machinery that was, that was keeping him alive. So then, um, how many people do you know that watched their dad die over FaceTime? Um, that was a pretty awful event. Um, Colleen and I were down in our basement. She was living with us still and, and me, Katie and Colleen kind of sat on the couch and called up and you know, there we are watching my dad get unplugged. And I said it out loud. This is so stupid. Why? This is so 
stupid. Why are we, why do we have to go through this? And, um, you know, when they declared him as having passed, uh, we turned off the call. We said goodbye to everybody. I looked at Colleen and Katie and, and just said, you know, I can't, I, I have to scream. I have to scream. And so I went into Colleen's bedroom and just buried my face in a pillow and screamed. And then we went outside and lit a fire with our kids in the backyard, roasted marshmallows. Um, and I immediately turned to uh, being extremely vocal in public about what had happened. And I think in a big effort to get support in um, such a hard moment, I called the president of our company and I posted on Facebook what had happened with pictures. And I just, I had made the decision. I'm going to be extremely vocal about this because I think I need to be. Katie, what was it like for you watching Alan go through all of this? Alan, to this point, um, Alan hadn't really ever been to a funeral. I grew up really like going to a lot of funerals. Um, I'm Polynesian. And so you're related to everybody <laughs> and, um, and, and including my sister when I was 12 years old. Um, well, actually I was 11 at the time. So I, I feel, I feel like, um, as far as like surrounding death, um, never of a parent. Right. But, uh, but as a sibling, I was the oldest and I watched my sister die and, um, saw it, been to a lot of relatives, um, funerals. I felt like I could, I, I could handle, you know, emotionally what was happening, even though it was really hard. And it was really hard for me to see Alan and how he was, um, grieving in, because it was in such a different way than I, um, I felt like I had been exposed to it a lot longer and at an early age. And Alan was just now getting this wave in his adult years. And so, and that, that was really hard to see. It was hard to know what to do for him. Alan, after your father died, you sort of entered into a period of intense grief and, and mental anguish. Can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, how your depression manifested itself and you just a little bit about what happened in the months following the death. Yeah, of course. So, you know, at first when, when someone that close to you, right, a father um, dies the first month, there is an outpouring of support. So you really feel buoyed up. Um, I still to this day say that his funeral was one of the most positive days of my life because we were celebrating him and we wrote, my brothers and I wrote a parody song and sang it at his luncheon after the funeral. But after that initial period of outpouring of support, I mean, life goes on. It's not a cut at anybody else. Um, but the, the constant messages stop that buoying up stops and you're left to, to you're left in the rubble to kind of pick up and figure out where to go next. About six months after he passed, I, I had a job opportunity to either leave the company I was at, which I was very happy with, or go to a new or stay. <laughs> Those are the two options. My dad was the businessman. Both of my brothers are in the medical field. So he was the one that I would call to talk about this, not just because I'm a, he's my father, but he was 40 years in business and I felt like he can give me, give me some good You're advice. The most like him. <laughs> I was the most like him hairline and all. So he, um, you know, I, I remember I had a weekend 
to make the decision. And I remember praying so hard to my heavenly father, but also to my father, biological and earthly father, to like, tell, give me something. Can you please push me in the right direction? And I got nothing. And my whole life, I, I took that to mean, this is your decision. You've got to figure this out. So the next morning on Monday, I had to go into work and tell the president of our company which one I was going to choose. And on the way uh, to work, the song Say Something by Christina Aguilera and I forgot the Little Big World or something like that. And uh, the whole chorus is like, say something, I'm giving up on you. And I just lost it in the car, just crying. Like, I'm trying so hard to do the right thing here and I'm not getting any help. And I went to work, told him I was leaving, changed my mind three days later. I was just a mess. I, I just didn't know. <laughs> I'm still at the company because I never left. <laughs> and that was seven years ago. So, you know, get to the to the mental health um, aspect of it. I think that it's a pretty, uh, a pretty dramatic but good way of explaining it would be to read at least a part of my victim's impact statement that I read. And this will be a, I haven't read this since I gave it. So about a year after um, my father's accident, the, the driver of the car was um, getting sentenced uh, for her crime, <laughs> both driving under the influence and fleeing the scene. And uh, part of that process is the victims get to go and read their impact statement of what this event has, has meant to them. I said, uh, I'm Alan Mount, Jim Mount's youngest of six children. You want honesty in this statement, right? I don't want to do this, not even a little bit. The last year and a half, so I guess it had been a year and a half, I've conditioned myself to never think of my dad. I hate how it makes me feel. I can't stand to see his picture because of the pain that resurfaces. I had saved his last voicemail and text message to me, but I've since deleted them because it reminded me of a relationship that was forced to end on August 13th, 2013. I've heard countless people say that the loved ones we lose aren't truly gone as long as we have our memories of them. Nope, not even a little bit of solace is taken with that sentiment. I don't want the memories anymore because the reality of not being able to create new ones is too much for my emotions to handle. I want Helen, the judge, and everyone else reading, listening to this to let that sink in. Not only did I lose the most influential person in my life, but the way he was taken from me has made me want to erase him from my memory altogether. The man that taught me how to work hard. Quote, if you're going to do something, do it right. The man that never missed a baseball or volleyball game, even when he was so hoping I would stick with basketball. The man that worked 50 to 60 hours a week, then spent his weekend serving others in the community. This is the man, my father, that I've decided is too painful to remember. I hate that reality because he doesn't deserve that. With how much this man impacted me, impacted my life, I should be stopping strangers in the street to tell them about my dad almost exclusively financed a good family's good family friend's new house simply because it was the right thing to do. We didn't know about that until after he passed, by the way. But I won't stop the stranger in the street. My wife knows better not to bring up my dad. She knows what it does to me. In the last year, I've battled depression, had a panic attack, and now take two antidepressant med medications. My life has changed permanently. It isn't just really sad that my dad was killed in a car accident by someone that had no right being behind the wheel of a vehicle. It's more than sadness. It's emptiness. I don't feel joy. I don't feel pain. I messed up because of the effects of my father being gone. So there you have it. The only reason I'm doing this is because I know it's the right thing to do for my father, but it's forcing me to think about him. Something Helen hasn't, has made torture to me. 
And then the interesting thing, Katie, going off of the, the script, there's one more paragraph, but the interesting thing is that by the time I got up to speak, a lot of other people had spoken and I really felt like I needed to put something positive um, in the end. I wrote this clearly in the depths of despair and depression. Um, and I meant every word of it, but I really felt like I needed to end. So while sitting there, I typed up a, a final paragraph um, and I actually erased my last paragraph and typed this. And I don't remember what the last paragraph was, but it was not positive. So I said, now my dad always taught me to love others and be positive. So I want to end this with some happiness. I recognize how much of a contrast what I'm about to say is from what I just said. Then I held up my son. This is my youngest son, Zachary James D. Mount. He was born on what would have been his grandfather and namesake's 70th birthday, just two months after the, the accident. He's adorable. He's not, my own, he's, he's not only my son, but a son of a heavenly father who loves each of his children. Helen, you're a daughter of that same God and he loves you. We love you and our hearts are broken for you and your family as well. Looking back, I mean, we were on one side of the aisle in the courtroom. Helen's family was on the other side of the aisle. She was about to be sentenced and she, they read her sentence and literally handcuffed her and walked her away. Um, her mother tried to come and hug her and the bailiffs would not let her. And so they took her there. They took her away and we just felt so bad for her family. Um, we, my mom and her husband met in the aisle and just hugged. Uh, they embraced and cried and we all just lost it. I mean, we were, we were just a mess. And the crazy thing is, and something that Katie and I have learned just in our own lives in the last few years is that those, those terribly difficult, traumatic experiences, speaking of the courtroom are, are part of the healing process. Um, putting that, putting these words into writing while I couldn't, you know, if, maybe when I'm looking at my life after it's over, I could, I could imagine, I could look at this, this courtroom and confirm that this was part of my turnaround uh, because I was able to speak about um, openly how, how hard this has all been for me um, to kind of talk about the everyday anxiety, depression that, that I experienced um, understanding that I loved your introduction to this, by the way, Katie, because you're right. I've, I've never experienced mental health issues in my life other than probably ADHD and not being able to concentrate in school, but which is not something to take lightly, of course, but, uh, anxiety and depression was, was not, was not a problem. And to right now is not a problem for me. So this was really a, an isolated event and something I had to work through. I remember the first time you had a panic attack. Ooh, that was rough. And I actually didn't know what it was. I didn't understand what was going on because I had never had one and um, Alan had never had one. And so he, he, I, we were at home and he was like, I feel really anxious and he couldn't go to sleep and he was like pacing back and forth. He's like, my heart is just pounding so bad. And my, this breathing, was, my breathing became labored. This was about a year after he had passed. So Alan had, I felt like he had repressed a lot of emotions and feelings and hadn't worked through those um, because he wouldn't look at pictures of his dad. He wouldn't talk about his dad. I thought about making like a quilt of pictures with his dad, but he very early on told me that that's not something he would want. And so I, I thought like, gosh, you, you need to go see someone, you need to go see someone that can help you. Um, 
because you have all these emotions you have not been able to address yet. You just, as soon as the event, the actual event of the funeral and everything was over, we went back to a busy life. I was pregnant at the time with our fourth and he had a really busy job um, where he was gone all the time. And, and so um, his first panic attack, I remembered it was really late at night. It was like midnight. And um, so two in the morning for where Alan's mom lived. And I called his mom because I didn't know what to do for him. And um, she, she got on the phone with Alan and she said, okay, tell me what's happening. And, and immediately they, they knew it was a panic attack. And, and then, you know, from there on, he, we would be on a date and we would have a really good night and a fun time. And in the middle of the date or towards the end of the date, he would have another panic attack. And I just, I could not figure it out because I was like, we're having a good time. We're relaxed. We're enjoying each other. But then it would just come on suddenly. And he started having these like heart palpitations and stuff. And so I'm like, you've got to go see a doctor. Like we have to address your heart, your heart issue. We have to address, um, you know, your panic attacks. I thought that it had, it was linked to his dad, but um, with the physical, I mean, he had like some physical things happening. We thought, oh, well, maybe it's, maybe it's more physical than mental. So I made an appointment for him to see a doctor and Alan went to the appointment and it was it was pretty disheartening, right? Yeah. The first, the first appointment wasn't the first appointment because I saw the same doctor twice. The first appointment, he got me on some mild anxiety medication. Uh, I started taking it and it didn't do much. It didn't do much. He said, you know, give it a week or two and, and then you should start to feel, and I, I didn't, it didn't help at all. So I went back and told him, told the doctor this, like, it's not really helping. I'm still having these, these episodes and anxiety and panic attacks. And he treated me like I was nuts. Uh, I was really disheartened. Uh, he, he kind of stopped paying attention to what I was telling him, started looking around the room, looking at his, looking at the chart. And, and I went home furious. I went home and just told Katie, I'm done. I'm not going back. I'm not going to another, I'm not doing it. And I, I didn't, I, to this day, I still have not, I have not gone back to any kind of well, we tried a therapist. Um, I made you an appointment, but anyway, you didn't want to go. And so I've completely blocked that from my memory. I don't even yeah, remember that. I had made a, an appointment and the, when, when looking for one, cause I didn't know anybody, I would call and talk to the secretary and I'm like, look, I need someone that's going to be um, loving and compassionate towards him. So give me a woman. I don't want a man. <laughs> and, and I was pretty specific in my needs, you know, cause just cause he had had a bad experience and everything. And anyway, but Alan didn't want to go to that appointment. And so we, you know, so I, I was, I felt a little helpless as a spouse cause I didn't know how else to help him. Yeah. The, uh, what, the realization that, that I have now is that when I was going through this anxiety and depression, it, it, it impacts everything in your life. Um, I always thought depression as <laughs> you're sad. I mean, I was ignorant. I didn't know what it meant, but similar to what I said in my impact statement, it was, it's not you're sad. It's nothing. There's no emotion. I, I was flatlined emotionally, no joy no, no sadness, no anger, just nothing. I couldn't cry if I wanted to, and I wanted to, but I couldn't. And that impacts everything in your life, your relationship with your kids, with your wife, 
um, it actually positively impacted me at work because I got to just, I didn't feel nervous or anxious about big presentations. So I was the, the, the craziest thing. And uh, I was, I was really thriving at work. I was having a lot of success at work, but it didn't mean anything to me. It didn't, it didn't help. I talked to a few coworkers who had one of my coworkers that I didn't even know uh, that this had happened until he kind of recognized that I wasn't doing great. He came up to me and said, Hey, I don't know that you know this, but you know, five years ago, my wife was killed in a car accident and we had, I mean, he's our age. So at the time I was 32, 31. Uh, and I'm like, what? And he told me the story and, and he, he kind of gave this, this analogy. And I think this is probably a good point to kind of, um, tie into things getting better maybe. But he said, for me, it, it was like a boulder was on top of my chest and I couldn't breathe. And I thought I was going to die. And over time, the boulder got smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where finally I feel like I can take this rock that is small enough to fit in my pocket and I can put it away. But when I need to feel it again, I'll take it out and put it back on top of my chest. But now I, I have, it never goes away, but now I can control it a little more. And that to this day has really stuck with me. Um, and I've found it to be very accurate. As you can tell here, there's still a lot of pain surrounding this event when, when I need it. And when we address it, like this pain can come back for a moment, but then I can put it away. And in half an hour, I've got a call for work and I'll be totally fine. So one other thing that I really feel is like important to mention is that um, a few of my siblings had talked throughout this, you know, first year and a half, two years after my dad had passed. I even talked to my mom about it of, uh, I just, I, it feels like he's gone. I have not felt anything. I, I, and you know, we were raised very religious and, I just, I don't feel like he's there anymore. And, and this was, you know, we mentioned our podcast that I've had a faith transition, which isn't the topic of this podcast, but it certainly plays into this period of depression and anxiety that I started to question whether or not I will see him again. I started to question everything in my life that had to do with uh, the faith that I was brought up in. And that's where the initial kind of chinks in the armor religiously or spiritually started. Uh, so that just added to the to the weight of this whole situation. So, Katie, uh, when did, from what you noticed, when did a turnaround start to happen? When did Alan start opening up more to you? You know, that's a good question. I mean, two to two and a half years after he stopped having panic attacks and it seemed like things were getting better. He could look at pictures. He could talk about his dad. Um you know, he was wanting to do a lot of deep dive researches into a lot of things, into, you know, his dad's passing, um, trying to get closure on that, talking about it with his family, um, because we did see his dad die on on um, FaceTime. And that was, it really, it really was, um, didn't provide a whole lot of peace. And, and so having the conversations with his siblings surrounding his dad's death about what actually was going on in the room um, that we weren't a part of was gave a lot of closure to him. I think that helped him heal and, and move on. And then quite honestly, you know, his faith, he, he did deep dives into that. And that was helpful for him because, um, you know, he really wanted to try and figure out where he what he felt about, you know, seeing his dad again. 
And that was helpful to him. So he started to come around again and then things got better. And, you know, honestly, there are moments of still, you know, obviously the, the wounds are still really raw and fresh for us, but I think that, um, we are much better equipped now, um, as a couple to handle things like this. And, you know, it was, it's felt like one wave after another, we dealt with, you know, all three of his grandparents dying. And then we dealt with his dad's death and then we dealt with his faith transition. And, um, you know, there in, in your marriage, especially, um, things like that can tear people apart. They can tear marriages apart. You know, when, when, when one spouse is dealing with something like depression or anxiety or panic attacks and the other just they feel helpless, you know, I felt really helpless. I didn't know how to help him. And, you know, I, I think one thing that is really important, um, for people to know is you can't skip any part of the grief cycle. When you go through the grief cycle, you want to skip the, the denial. You want to skip the pain. You want to skip, um, the memories. You, you just want to avoid it at all costs. And I am famous for avoiding things. Um, I'm kind of, I'm a people pleaser. So it's very hard sometimes to, to, to just face things head on, but you know, in order for you to get through that grief cycle, um, and to heal from it and to grow and learn and be compassionate and sympathetic and empathetic towards other people, you have to feel all of those things. And in some ways, um, I feel like Ellen had a hard time, um, you know, hitting that pain straight on. And instead he was trying to avoid it. Right. Which is why it was so physically manifested in his body. Don't skip a step in the grief cycle. That's what helps you grow closer in that emotional intimacy setting, right? You as a couple, um, you're sharing with one another and each other's pain. And, and because of that, um, you learn and grow from that. Special thanks to Daniel Sowards for the audio editing, to Carrie Randall for the graphic art, and to Shiny Head Productions for the original music.